So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series over the last few months looking together at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And this morning, I wanted to begin our time together by asking you this question. Have you ever had the experience of getting yourself into trouble because you ignored a warning? You ever gotten yourself into some serious trouble because you ignored a warning? Now, for some of you, the answer is no. You're very safety conscious, and you always pay attention to the emergency light that goes on in your car and to warning labels, and you're very careful. But there are others in this room who, if you're like me, you think that those warning labels are precautionary measures for those accident-prone people. But that's not you. You live life on the wild side, you take risks, and you're fine, you're competent, you're okay. And uh, I've kind of grown up with this mentality. I can remember years ago uh, when my daughters, Audrey, Mia, and Lucy, were just about six, four, and I think two, I took them over to Trader Joe's, and I had a very long shopping list that I had to accomplish with my three daughters, and we were there, and I got there, and it was just packed. And I just thought, how am I gonna navigate through Trader Joe's with my three young children? And so then I looked down at the cart and I saw that there was a warning label. I'm like, that's brilliant, we'll try that. And so uh, we stuck one of my daughters on top and then I had two daughters stuck on the side and then they kind of grabbed onto the side rail of the cart and we're pushing the cart through Trader Joe's and filling the thing up with groceries and everything was going awesome, it was great. And I had these old ladies that would walk by and they'd see me and they'd be like, oh my, what a nice young father you girls have, you know? And I could just tell that, you know, and I was kind of, you know, being filled with pride. If you've read uh, The Wind in the Willows, some of you, you remember Toad being puffed up with pride? You know Toadie? Come on, people, read The Wind in the Willows. But there I was, you know, kind of being swelled up with pride. And I'm about done with our shopping trip. By now, the shopping cart is about full because it was a long list. One daughter's on one side, one daughter's on the other side. I'm feeling completely great until my daughter, Audrey, steps off the side of the cart to grab the cheese. And the weight of Mia on the other side of the cart tipped the cart. And all of a sudden, the cart fell on top of my daughter, Mia. My daughter, Lucy, cut her face open. There's blood going everywhere. Groceries are flying up in the sky. You know, old ladies are walking by, wondering what an incompetent father I am. People are calling child protective services. But I got myself in trouble because I ignored a warning. Have you been there? Well, this morning we open up in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 some warnings from the Apostle Paul that he's giving to the church in Corinth and to us. And the warnings here are warnings that you and I would ignore to our own peril. Now, maybe this morning you're visiting with us, maybe you're new to Christianity, and maybe your perception of Christians is that, you know, you go to church and they're constantly fear-mongering and they're giving all these warnings and they're trying to scare you, you know, they're using scare tactics and trying to get people into heaven and into church because of scare tactics or whatever. But if you're worried about that, I just want to set your, your fears at ease for a second because the warnings that are issued in this text are not issued to those outside of the church. They're actually given to those inside of the church. Here, Paul is issuing warning against those who are participating in the life of the church. 
And in this passage, we see a few things that Paul says are unique dangers to those who engage in the life of a local church. And so this morning, we're going to look together at three or four of these warnings that Paul issues to us. And the first warning, the first danger that he puts us on guard against is first the danger of idolizing church leaders. The danger of idolizing church leaders. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos and what then is Paul? Now stop there. One of the things that we've said over and over again over the last couple months together is that there was this movement in first century Corinth called sophistry. And sophistry was a movement that, was, that had as its head the sophists, which when you hear sophists, you think Sophia, which also reminds you of what? Wisdom. But we've said wisdom in first century Corinth was not so much wise, pithy aphorisms, book of Proverbs, kind of the wisdom of the ancients. Rather, the wisdom of the sophists was the wisdom to rhetoric and oratory. It was your ability to turn a phrase, to turn on a crowd, to get people to do what you wanted them to do. It was the wisdom of self-presentation, image management. And those who were masters at sophistry in the first century were the celebrities in the culture. And this was also a culture not just of celebrity and of sophistry, but it was a culture that was uber-concerned with rank and status. And so one of the ways in which you gained and increased your own rank and status was by attaching yourself to one of the celebrity sophists. And so if there was this celebrity sophist, let's say his name was Rufus, and he was popular and he could gather crowds and impress them, then if you attached yourself to him, you became one of his disciples, or maybe you were a parent and you employed Rufus as a teacher of your children, you had bragging rights. You were a part of Rufus's crew. He was your teacher. You could say, I'm of Rufus. And by attaching yourself to celebrity, you increased in status and in rank. And what we said again and again is that the issue that was happening in the city of Corinth was being mirrored in the church. And that they were taking these same values of rank and status and celebrity in the culture, and they were applying it to the leaders in the church, and they were attaching themselves to their leaders, and they were bragging, and they were divided, and all this stuff. So what was happening in the culture was being mirrored in the church. Now, isn't it, can you imagine living in a time and place where pastors were treated as celebrities? Wouldn't that be shocking? Of course, we live in such a time and place. Celebrity is big in American culture. Of course, there's not just rock stars and uh, TV and movie celebrities. Now there's Instagram celebrities. If you can garner a following on Instagram with 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 followers, you can become kind of a minor celebrity. And the same values of celebrity that are playing out in the culture, of course, are being mirrored in the church. And we have our own celebrity pastors. And you have Christians that attach themselves to the celebrity pastors. Oh, I belong to John Piper. 
because he's all about the sovereignty of God and the glory of God, and that's what I'm on about. Or I'm into John MacArthur because he's right when it comes to his interpretation of the Bible. Or I'm of N.T. Wright, or I'm of Tim Keller, or some other celebrity in the Christian world. And we attach ourselves to these celebrities, and we can idolize church leaders. And of course, this can happen in the life of a congregation. You can look back on previous pastors. I'm looking back uh, on uh, Dick Anderson right here. And we can look back on, on previous pastors and go, there's a celebrity in our midst, you know? And of course, you've got a celebrity up here. And um, I could feel competitive against him, and I could say, I hope you like me better than him, and this sort of, like this, the same stuff that happens in the culture happens in the church all the time. And Paul names this in the church in Corinth, and he calls it out. And he calls them into something different. And he says, what then is Paul, and who is Apollos? And notice his answer. Christian leaders are not celebrities, they're servants. Look at what it says in the text. He says, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. And then he draws on this analogy of farming. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So he said, Who are, what are Christian leaders anyway? He says, what are these pastors anyway? He says, they're simply farmhands that have been given chores to do by God. He says, they're nothing special. He says, I planted Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. It's interesting, this image that you're looking at on the screen, this is a painting by Van Gogh. And he was commissioned by a wealthy merchant to paint six portraits of saints. And Van Gogh came back to him and said, I'll do it, but he says, I don't want to paint saints according to your perception. I'm going to paint potato farmers. And so Van Gogh produced this series of farm workers. And I think Paul would do the same thing. He said, look, you want to treat me as some celebrity, some saint? He said... Don't think of of Christian leaders as celebrities. Think of them as servants, as farmhands who are at work. And Paul identifies his work. He said, I planted. Of course, Paul was the one who went into the city, and he planted the church. And then after Paul left, Apollos came on, and he says, and Apollos watered. But he said, though I planted and Apollos watered, it was really God who was doing the work. God gave the growth. Verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Do you see what he's doing in this text? He's redirecting our confidence and our focus from Christian leaders to God. And he's saying the leaders at the end of the day are futile, like they're, they're, they're nothing without God. I can remember back when I was uh, a youth pastor at a Calvary Chapel years and years ago. I remember I, I had served there for a few years, and I really had built and had been leading in a really effective youth ministry. And there came a point where um, I needed to transition out of my role as youth pastor. And I can remember I was deeply, I was freaked out. I'm like, what, what's going to happen now to the youth group once I leave? You know, I've been so awesome, and I'm so great, you know, after I leave these poor kids, you know, and um, I left, and you know what happened? Everything was fine, actually, and then uh, 
A few years later, I had been the youth pastor at uh, a great Grace Brethren Church in Long Beach, and I handed the youth minister o- or the youth ministry over to uh, a young kid of mine who was actually in my youth group at Calvary Chapel, who I'd kind of discipled. And when he took over to the youth group, do you know what happened then? It grew and it got better. And you start to realize that God uses leaders like instruments. He picks them up and he uses them in a time and a place for a purpose. But then he can set them aside and he can pick up other ministers and use them in a time and a place and a purpose. And Paul is talking about this because of the human tendency to idolize and to put too much confidence in human leadership. So he says, he who plants and he who waters, they're not in competition with each other. Like, we are not out competing with other churches and with other leaders. He says, no, they are one. Each one will receive his wages according to his labors, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's fields. And so the first warning that he issues for us is a warning about idolizing our leaders and putting too much confidence in human leadership. The second warning I want you to see that he issues is the warning against shoddy construction when we engage in building God's church. So first he he identifies the danger of idolizing church leaders, and secondly, he identifies the danger of shoddy church work. Look what he says in verse 10, or verse 9. Notice he switches the metaphor. He says, we are God's fellow workers, so we're out there laboring in God's field. And he's like, no, let's lay that one aside. You're not just God's field, you're God's building. And now he uses the analogy of building. He says, verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. But let each one take care how he builds on it. So Paul in this text is essentially using the metaphor of a design builder to describe his own work. He was the architect of really the growth of the early church, the spread of Christianity. He was kind of the the architect of the church in Corinth, and he said, I also laid the foundation, so I gave the design, I laid the foundation, and the foundation, he says, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the church's one true foundation. So he says, I laid that foundation, and now someone else is building on it. And what he's talking about here is he's using this analogy to describe building up a local church. Sometimes we think about Paul's analogy here about building with wood, hay, and straw, or with precious metals, as primarily referring to our own personal lives. What are you building your personal life on? But Paul in this text is not talking about your personal individualistic building efforts of your own life or, some, or some, something you're engaged in. He's talking about your work that you give to the church. Or let's just be specific. specific. Many of us are not engaged in church work. Some of you are engaged in being a church consumer and you treat the church like a vendor of religious goods and services, and so you come in here and you just consume and you consume and you consume, and then you walk out and you uh, talk with others about whether or not you like the sermon or you like the music or you like the children's ministry, but you don't contribute your time, your gifts, your money or anything. You just consume, consume, consume. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
Paul actually is not addressing you in this passage. He's not addressing those who consume, he's addressing those who contribute. And so many of you contribute to the upbuilding of the church. And so you're engaged in women's ministry, or prayer ministry, or men's ministry, or music ministry. Or maybe you're engaged in eldering, or deacon ministry, or you're on the welcome team, or you're, wel- or you're the welcome team lead, or you're engaged in some sort of area of life and ministry in this church, and you're contributing to build up the church. And here Paul is addressing you and me. Now, of course, I fall into this category. My entire profession is to build up the church. And so Paul issues this warning to you and I. Look at what he says. He says, each one needs to take care how he builds. And then he talks in verse 12 about shoddy and about sound construction. Notice first the sound construction. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation that is Jesus Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones... This is sound construction. Sound construction is built upon the sound foundation and its construction reflects the integrity of the original foundation. In other words, sound ministry reflects the cruciform love of God in Jesus Christ. If the foundation of Jesus, if the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, then sound and solid church work reflects the way of Jesus. I can remember a friend of mine a while back, who actually preached here a while back, Steve Porter. He preached a sermon called "Doing the Jesus Thing in the Jesus Way," and he was taking a line from Dallas Willard, who said, "Look, sometimes you can do the Jesus things." You can engage in church work. You can engage in church life, and a lot of you are. But he asked the question, are you engaging in the Jesus things in the Jesus way? The Jesus way meaning your character and your own life reflects something of the character and the life of Jesus. And ministry that's built that way is sound. Ministry that is, is, is built with gold, silver, and precious stones, the gospel, the word of God, prayer, love. This is sound, solid ministry. But then there is ministry that's built of wood, hay, and straw. And this is the kind of ministry that's motivated by false and conflicted motivations. And so, for example, there might be somebody who engages in church work because they have this voracious need to be needed. And so, for example, some of you might know this experience from being maybe a mother or whatever. You, 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 you are so dependent upon your children needing you that you actually continue to enable them so that you keep feeling needed. And ultimately, your parenting is about yourself. It's not about your child. And so too, church work can be about people's own need to be needed. For some, for some people, they need to be in charge, and so church work for them is about being in charge. Some people need to have identity, and they need to have some uh, acknowledgement, so church work can be about that. But Paul says that is wood, hay, and stubble. And notice what he says, verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each person has done. 
When it refers here to the day and to fire, he is referring to that ultimate day in the future, the day of judgment, eschatological judgment, when the curtain is pulled back and Jesus reveals himself to the world as the world's true king, and on that day, you and I will stand before Jesus and we will give an account for what we do and for the kind of work we've engaged in in the church. And if on that day the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, they will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. This is one of those passages that causes me to lose some sleep at night. (laughs) Because it puts me on, it puts you on notice, it puts us all on notice that what we do matters and why we do it matters. How we engage in the life of God's church matters. And it has eternal significance, and it will either result in eternal reward or eternal loss. And so he says, be on guard against your own church building, that you're not using shoddy materials, that you're not engaged out of false motivations, that you're not using worldly wisdom to grow and to build and to control and to manipulate and to coerce and to get people to do things in the life of the church. So he warns us first against idolizing church leaders, secondly, about shoddy church work, but thirdly, he gives us the most severe warning in verse 16 to verse, eight, verse, verse 16 and 17, where he warns us against actually destroying God's temple. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, "Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." You know, what Paul says here is grounded in this deep and this magnificent vision of what the church is. He says it is the church, it is the community of faith that is the temple of God. You know where he says here, you are God's temple? In the original Greek, that's translated into the plural. And so if you're from Texas, it would be all y'all are God's temple. Like, you all together collectively make up God's temple. He's not saying you individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit, though later he will say that. Here he's making a different point. His point here is is that if you want to know the place where the true and living God, who is always everywhere at all times, has chosen to make his presence palpable and transformative and manifest It is in the gathered community of God. It is in the church. He says, you are the unique temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the first century, do you realize how stunning of a claim this was? You see, in the first century, when they thought the place where the the presence of God dwelt, it was here. For ancient Israel, the place where God showed up was in the temple in Jerusalem. It was in this sacred place, this magnificent building. It was here that was the axis mundi, the meeting of heaven and earth. It was here where God showed up. And if you wanted to go meet with God, you would go, you know, and you'd take this long journey to this sacred place. 
and you would go through all the proper ritual, and it was there that you would meet the presence of God in this sacred place. And of course, it wasn't just ancient Israel who believed that God would meet his people in the temple. In the city of Corinth, they had all kinds of temples for all their various gods. And of course, in our own day, we have temples like this, where people think, like, if there is a god, or if there are several gods, surely they'd live in a place like this, which if I were God, I mean, wouldn't that be a great place to live? But what's incredible, what's stunning is God has not chosen to live in a place like this. He's chosen instead to inhabit a people like you. Collectively, we come together. Do you realize that when we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, the living presence of the true God is as close to you as the person sitting next to you? You all are the temple of the living God. And so Paul says, be careful how you treat the temple. When you divide the church, when you gossip, when you backbite, when you start tearing the community of faith apart, God says you are destroying the very place where my presence dwells. And so he warns us in verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That's a heavy word. We need to be careful how we talk about the church, how we treat the church. Most of us have way too low view of the church. And I don't blame you, because look around. Don't we look kind of like a paltry, insignificant group? Well, you don't have to be so assertive about that. (laughs) And yet it is in the midst of this weak, insignificant human community gathered together in the name of Jesus, here and in different parts of this play, of this city, and in different parts of this nation, of different parts of this world, that the true and living God, by his presence, comes to dwell. And so God says, be careful how you treat my temple. Revere this people. There are no ordinary people in this church. You have never seen an ordinary person. Everyone around you is an image bearer of God. And when you snub people and you backbite them and you tear, you're tearing apart the sacred people that God has chosen to inhabit. So Paul says, beware of idolizing your leaders, church. He says, beware of building with shoddy materials. And then he says, beware of actually destroying, dividing, tearing apart God's church. And then he leaves us with a final warning that I think is really a good summary of it all. He says, verse 18, he says, and let no one deceive himself. If anyone is among, among you thinks they're wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. I was reading through this text this week and I was kind of like working through it. And I was really thinking deeply about how this text applies to my own. I was thinking about the answer I'm gonna give to Jesus for you all. And it's sobering. And I started to think, and I was like, well, may I, I think, I think, I, I think like I, I'm evaluating myself. I'm like, I think I have the right heart. I think I'm doing the right things. And then I get to this verse, let no one deceive himself. I think I shared with you that there was a book written by a professor at Biola 
few years back on self-deception. The, the name of the book was I Told Me So. It's a great title. It's easy to think, oh, I don't idolize leaders. I don't build with shoddy workmen. When my engagement in the church is different. I'm not dividing the church. I'm just sharing prayer requests. Paul says, let no one deceive themselves. Those who think they're wise in this age, and yet in their own character and life, they don't reflect the true wisdom of God, which is the cruciform love of God in Christ Jesus. Here's the wisdom of God. It's not your ability to carefully divide apart theology and Bible and uh, identify which movements out there are really of God and which ones are really false and bad, and I'm going to identify that for everyone. And try. Like, the wisdom of God is manifest not in your own brain power. It's manifest in your own heart that's been so transformed by the cross of Jesus that you start to reflect it in your own life and character. Here is the wisdom of God among us. It's the cross. But it's super easy to deceive ourselves, to think that we are on, that we're, you know, but then have it be disconnected from reality. You know, um, in surfing, if you want to know what good surfing is, it, it looks something like this. Like, good surfing involves digging your rail in deep with strength and being able to muscle through like a bottom turn and go up and like hit the lip and then bring the board back down and then dig the rail in again and go back up to the top and hit it and go back down and then dig your rail in again and go back up and hit it and go back down. When I was in high school, I had a friend who, um, he thought he was an amazing surfer. And yet when he would surf, it would look like this. He would, um, he would paddle into a wave and he'd go on his board and instead of his board going up and down, he would go like this. And then he'd get out and he'd be like, did you see that awesome wave? Be like, man, you weren't surfing, you were flapping your arms. You're out of touch with reality. And I think a lot of times in church, we can just be flapping our arms. We can be so busy in church work and church life, flapping our arms, busy in all of our ministry work, and yet we're not really digging in to genuine love and hope and faith and patience and gentleness and kindness and goodness and self-control and faithfulness. Like, this is what God is after, a community of character and leaders who reflect that character. So don't deceive yourself. Be honest. Ask for input. And stop boasting in men, verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Ultimately, friends, it all belongs to God. SMCC belongs to God. This is God's field. This is God's building. This is God's temple. Any workers are just God's workers. It's all God. And so may we as a people 
now and in the months and in the years ahead, be a community that is deeply rooted in God, that relies on God to do God's work in God's way, in God's time, with God's people? And would we pursue that work in the way of Jesus together? Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we ask that you would come among us. And that you would expose us before that great day. We pray, O oh Father, that by your grace you would bring people in our lives, experiences, suffering if necessary, that might make us aware of our own shoddy construction efforts for the ways in which we put too much emphasis on human leaders, for our own actions that destroy and divide your church. And would you bring us to repentance? And would you give us the strength and the grace to pursue you and the good upbuilding of your church so that you, O oh Lord God, might be glorified? And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.